0: Have you ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window? It's this amazing thriller starring Jimmy Stewart as Jeff, a photographer with a broken leg who's confined to his apartment while he's healing up. To pass the time, he starts to watch his neighbors from the rear window of his apartment. Using his telephoto lens and a handy pair of binoculars, he becomes completely fascinated with their day-to-day lives before realizing something isn't quite right in one of the other apartments. Stewart's character becomes obsessed with both finding out the truth and seeing justice done. Of course, first, he must convince those in his orbit that he hasn't just gone stir-crazy and put on a tinfoil hat while recovering at home. Before long, he does convince his girlfriend Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, that something truly is afoot. And in short order, both characters are well into the action, adventure, and high suspense that are the best parts of a Hitchcock film. In the end, the mystery is solved, justice is done, and all is right with the world. But not before Lisa is arrested, goes to jail, Jeff is attacked, and he's thrown out of that rear window, breaking his other leg. Last fall, I had a few medical procedures of my own to recover from, and I actually thought I had a pretty good plan for that time. I thought I'd get some rest, I'd enjoy my reduced workload, and I'd finally catch up on both reading and sleep. Well, you know what they say about the best laid plans. Instead, I spent the fall starring in my own version of Rear Window, racing the clock to solve a mystery after discovering a few things that didn't make sense and deciding to poke around just a little bit. Before I knew it, I was face to face with the answers, and they were far more shocking, far more infuriating, and far more heartbreaking than I ever could have imagined. Have you ever watched those scenes in movies where the detectives or the journalists are completely obsessed with getting to the truth, and they have all the note cards and the post-it notes and the pushpins with the red yarn connecting all the dots? If so, you were probably like me and thought, that's a cool visual, but there's no way anyone would ever actually do that. Yeah, I did used to think like that, right up until the moment when I found myself completely out of note cards, post-it notes, and pushpins on the same day about halfway through this process. This is the story of the fall I was supposed to take it easy, but instead found myself knee deep in a mystery. Channeling my inner Aaron Brockovich, Woodburn and Bernstein, and Jethro Gibbs all in one, I swept my friends, my family, and my business partner up along with me on a wild race to find out the truth and figure out what really happened all before it was too late for an amazing young woman no longer able to speak or fight for herself. You've probably figured out it was one heck of a fall. And now I get to tell you everything, every tragic twist, every shocking turn, and I get to introduce you to Anna, the heroine of our story and the beautiful strong soul at the center of it all. I know her story will affect you It will probably infuriate you, and it will definitely inspire you every bit as much as it has me. We even solved the mystery, but no spoilers just yet. Just an assurance that for all my comparisons to Hitchcock, no one's come over to my house to throw me out of my window or break my legs over this. Not yet, anyway. This is Intersections, a special limited presentation of The Brink with Benjamin Bryant and the BZMP. Exploring the aftermath of the night of shock tragedy took away one woman's ability to tell her own story and gave others the opening to revise and rewrite a very different one for her. I'm Benjamin Bryant. Do you remember when we decided?
1: Was there a moment where we
0: decided? No, I guess not. It was just kind of one of those things where we knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah,
1: it was the only thing we could do.
0: And insane. And expensive. (laughs) In retrospect. That was the very last note and the very last entry of the audio record we kept throughout this entire process. When I hear it now, it's like the last line of a book, a great book full of deep love, intense drama, and a shocking twist at the end. But you know how the last line in a book is often completely unremarkable on its own, but incredibly satisfying to everyone who knows the story that came before it? That's definitely the case here, too. When I hear those words, I'm reminded of all the crazy, the intense, the incredible moments that it took to get us there. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You can't really start a story at the end, can you? So let's start where this one should, at the beginning.
1: Hey, you need a hand with that? No, I think I got it. You sure?
0: Yeah. That's Tommy Zamberlin. He's my friend, business partner, co-producer, and roommate. He's also handy as heck, and he can fix pretty much anything in your house. But for the purposes of this story, The thing you need to know is he's basically my Dr. Watson. Tommy's the voice of caution, reason, healthy skepticism, and he's that guy who always seems to catch that one thing no one else realized was significant. That's going to be very important, very soon. You go on ahead, I'll catch up. Okay. That's us last August, in Snellville, Georgia, just outside Atlanta, getting ready to meet with Delandra Belcher and Adriana George, the mother and sister of Anna Clark. Anna was a staff sergeant in the United States Army, a 10-year veteran, left permanently disabled after an incident where she suffered, among other things, a severe traumatic brain injury. Anna's family were concerned that she wasn't receiving the full complement of DOD and veterans benefits she might be eligible for. My friend wondered if, while we were in Georgia, we could stop by, hear out the details of Anna's case, and offer any insider professional advice. It wasn't a crazy favor to ask. One, I'm a well-established crisis communications consultant and problem solver here in D.C. And that's given me a long history of navigating the complexities of the military and government. Two, my background means I'm exactly the kind of guy a lot of people tend to call when they have an Army-related question or problem. They know I love the Army, and they know it's kind of my family's business. And my own work for Army clients through the years hasn't been too shabby either. So when someone thinks of the Army and then they think of me, it makes me smile. The only problem with that is, knowing as much as I do about the Army, the only insight I can usually offer someone is a more in-depth explanation of why the Army is doing what it's doing, or why they came to the decision they did, and as difficult as it might seem to understand from the outside, why that course of action was probably the right one. So as we headed in to see Delondra and Adriana, Staff Sergeant Clark's family, that was my fear, that I just wouldn't have that much to offer. Did
2: you know that Queen Elizabeth was a mechanic? No, I did not. Did you hear that, Anna? Yes, Anna. Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) Were you expecting Anna to be there? You know, I, I don't know. I wasn't. I was surprised. I... I think it was reading the details of what happened to her and how horrific her injuries were that in my head she had sort of been permanently cast as that woman in that medically induced coma and as a patient. I hadn't thought about it,
1: but I was surprised to see her there. I guess I was still thinking she'd be in a military facility.
0: I think my first clue was when we got in there and the dining room to the right. Yeah, you know, you in that house, that was clearly a dining room, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was a bedroom. There was the bed. and, and And you couldn't tell at first that it was the medical bed.
1: Yeah, it was a little confusing. You know, there was bookshelves and, you know... Pictures. And Pictures on the and wall. And the stuffed animals. Stuffed animals. And stuffed you, animals.
0: You sort of get that brief look and you think, okay, well, that's a different way to do a dining room or a guest room because it doesn't have a door. Yeah. And then when we turned the corner and there was Anna in the wheelchair with all the tubes and the bags and everything, and I, you know, it was real.
1: It suddenly made sense, yeah.
0: If you're wondering if it was uncomfortable having Anna there, it wasn't. It's not hard to feel comfortable with Delandre, Anna, and Adriana in the home that they have made. Despite the clinical changes necessitated by Anna's care, the space is familiar and warm. It's a family home. It reflects lives of love and laughter and togetherness. Among Anna, her family, and even her pets, Tommy and I felt instantly at home, which actually may have been the only difficult part. Until that moment, Staff Sergeant Anna Clark was just a name in an email. Delondra was just a voice on the phone. Now, in their home, seated mere inches away from Anna, observing how Delandre and Adriana interacted with and cared for her, and suddenly directly cognizant of her personality, her abilities, and her limitations. All the players in this story felt more real, and the stakes felt very, very high. And while my priority was still gathering everything that I needed to figure out if there was any way we could actually offer professional assistance, I couldn't really deny that the information wasn't just cold data anymore. Watching her and her family? hmm it was so amazing. It was. It was. It was incredibly charming to see her,
1: especially when we got there and they were playing Connect Four. Because I
0: think you really got a sense of Anna's personality. The limitations were there, but there was this joy.
1: hmm Yeah, and, and and joy all around, just in how they were interacting with her. And I mean, it was it was like walking into any family's living room and watching them play a you know, game as a family.
0: And you saw how this family, this mother and this sister, are so devoted. Yes, yes, to their, to their sister, and she's still an equal member of them. Even the dogs, I love that. The dogs <laughs> jumping out and coming in there, and Anna loves the dogs and the cats, and they love her. And yeah. it was just this wonderful way to start.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a great beginning to a really interesting day.
2: Don't let Muffy get it. Anna, <laughs> 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 let me see what you got. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <there>. you're <laughs> yeah, I'm up there. You <laughs> cheating? I'm there. Oh, oh you almost there, Anna? I'm here. Yeah. Anna. <laughs> Anna's spirit is amazing.
0: To hear Delondra describe her daughter is to be reminded that a mother's love transcends all. There are moments during our first meeting where this sadness overcomes her, where a quick downward look or a crack in her voice pulls the curtain back to reveal the toll the tragedy and subsequent challenges have taken on her. And we'll get to some of those. But ask her to tell you about Anna, and it's all Mama's love. But there's something else too. Something that separates this moment from the one we're all familiar with. That mom or grandma beaming as they tell you all about their child's latest achievement or show you the latest school photo on their smartphone. You quickly realize that for Delandra, telling these stories is a sacred responsibility of sorts, a way to preserve the memory of Anna, her Anna, the Anna before the night everything was taken away and before others started telling their own stories. It's a responsibility, yes, but it's one she clearly embraces with all her heart.
2: Growing up, Anna was very, very loving. She's always been a fun, loving child, very energetic. Even when she was little, she would always find that positive and the negative. And at such a young age, that was amazing for her. You had to be happy with Anna. You couldn't be sad around her. You couldn't have a down moment.
0: I have to say the picture of Anna as a young child who was uh, positive and supportive doesn't surprise me much. When you talk to people who knew Anna, regardless of the context or the time period in which they knew her, they say the same things. And I have to say that that is not usual as someone In my profession, who often has to go and put together the story of a person or an event after the fact, uh, you're often weighing different accounts and different perspectives and the variations in people's memories and trying to figure out what picture best emerges. But with Anna, certain things are consistent, no matter who's talking about her. She's described as that caregiver. She's described as someone who's very clear-eyed in her optimism. She's described as someone who's encouraging and someone fiercely loyal to family and friends. And there's another thing that comes up over and over again. Her love of cars and motorcycles.
2: My dad, one time he bought a junker and then he put it in the backyard for her. And me and Anna actually rebuilt the whole engine when she was eight. And she started tickling again when she was 15. And when we moved here to Georgia, she wanted to go back to New York and stay with her dad because he was a mechanic. And she just always was into the mechanics.
0: It was a beautiful mix of passion and traits, according to pretty much everyone I've spoken to who knew Anna then. She was a caregiver and a tomboy, a big sister and a car enthusiast, a mama bear and a mechanic, both realist and optimist. And it quickly positioned Anna among family and friends as their go-to for advice, encouragement, and real talk. Anna, it seemed, was the accessible leader and natural mentor in her social circle, well known to be wise beyond her years.
2: Anna was always the what we call the mediator. She was always helpful with other people. Anybody had a problem when she was growing up, she always sat down and talked with them. And try to convince them to do the right thing.
0: They say it often takes three generations to make a lady. And while I don't know if that's true, it's clear that Delandra credits generational values for what a special person Anna turned out to be. She talks about the faith of her mother. She talks about the positivity she tried to instill in Anna and that Anna encouraged in her. And she talks about Anna's ability to reach others, to motivate and inspire them. And it's funny because at this point in her story, she disappears into her memory thinking about her daughter. And this wistful but incredibly lovely smile spreads across her face.
2: Anna always had that positive spirit, like, no matter what it is, there's something good that's going to come out in the end. And that's how she's always been. Very loving.
0: It was while completing a two-year degree that Anna decided on a career path she realized would allow her to combine both her passion for mechanics and natural leadership talents. The military, she told family and friends, and the United States Air Force in particular, was the right fit for her.
2: She was out of school. She graduated from college and she came to me and says, Mom, I'm joining the Army, don't stress. I said, but Anna, what happened to the Air Force? She says, Mommy, the Army is the way to go.
0: Did you hear that? That was Anna in the background, absolutely lighting up at the mention of the United States Army. Now, that's a woman after my own heart. If you listen closely, you'll hear her call out, Go Army! And Army Strong! Her frequent refrains whenever the topic of America's favorite service comes up. Anna loves the Army. Anna really, really loves the Army. And apparently, that's nothing new, because when she arrived at that recruiting station, the Air Force recruiter was nowhere to be found. And while she waited for him to return, she quickly realized that her fascination with the United States Air Force was nothing more than a passing teenage fancy. Because there was another boy at that party, and for Anna, the United States Army was love at first sight.
2: She was like, the Army has more adventure she said it was more active and she could go many places and she could do a lot in the army and she said she could impact a lot of people going to the army she was very energetic with that and very excited when she came and told me
0: Up after the break, 10 years and three combat tours later, the day everything changed.
2: 7 o'clock in the morning, I got a call. It was not good. They called me back and told me Anna wasn't gonna make it. We were losing her.
0: This is Intersections, a special limited presentation of The Brink with Benjamin Bryant and the BZMP.
1: It's Tommy Zamberlin, a.k.a. Dr. Watson. I hope you're enjoying getting to know Staff Sergeant Anna Clark and her family. By the end of this episode, you'll know what Ben and I did, that Anna is an exceptional woman, even today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Brink with Benjamin Bryant wherever you get your podcasts, because right after you meet Anna and her family in this episode, things start getting a little crazy. Starting with the next episode, you'll join us on our quest to find out the truth behind what happened to Anna, no matter what it takes. It gets a little bumpy for us all, but it's ultimately all worth it. We look forward to sharing it with you. So subscribe to The Brink with Benjamin Bryant today.
0: That day in the recruiter's office, Anna Clark fell in love with the army. And after 10 years, it was clear that the feeling was mutual. Anna's gut feeling that the military would be the perfect place to apply her education, love of mechanics, and natural mentoring skills proved right on target as she progressed through the service, first distinguishing herself as a newly enlisted soldier and later as a non-commissioned officer. In the 10 years after joining the Army, Anna served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, rose to the rank of Staff Sergeant, and was selected for promotion to Sergeant First Class and to attend drill Sergeant. school. Anna's performance evaluations as an NCO often read like glowing reviews, with ratings of excellence in four out of five categories. Consistent declarations of her to be, quote, among the best, or encouraging promotion ahead of her peers. One rater proclaims that she has unlimited potential. Another declares her to be extremely beneficial to the Army and a tremendous asset to any organization. One recommends that she always be kept in leadership positions with soldiers, as her example, and I quote, helps set the precedent that other soldiers will follow. And it appears the Army heeded those calls, consistently assigning her to positions of greater responsibility. More than one of her colleagues said she seemed destined for Sergeant Major. And by 2016, Anna, who'd earned two Army Commendation Medals in 16 months, was wrapping up a tour in Fort Drum, New York, where she'd been named her unit's master driver, been tapped for yet another promotion, and been selected for drill instructor school, one of the enlisted service's most competitive honors, commonly said to restrict serious consideration to only the Army's top 10 to 15 percent of soldiers. Anna's love of the Army had translated through the years into performance and momentum, and yet, even as she'd progressed, Anna was ever the mentor, someone whose soldiers noted her unrelenting optimism, encouragement, and her open door. The NCO they said they were most comfortable coming to with challenges both personal and professional.
2: A lot of her soldiers said if it wasn't for Anna, they wouldn't still be able to be in the military. There's plenty of times that she encouraged them and talked to them and um, guide them in the right direction. They told me that they were the unit of misfit toys. All of them had some kind of issue. And um, they say without Anna guiding them and directing them in the right direction and talking to them and staying on them and enforcing that they do what's right, they don't know if they would ever still continue to be in the Army.
0: These qualities perfectly positioned Anna for her next chapter as both Sergeant First Class and Drill Instructor. Until the night, things changed forever. 28-year-old Anastasia Clark of Copenhagen remains in the hospital listed in critical condition. Watertown police are asking anybody who may have witnessed the crash to give them a call. Here's the number 315
2: The accident happened May 21st. Apparently they had the last digit of my phone number incorrect. So, um, 7 o'clock in the morning, um, I got a call and I missed the call and then when I try to call it back, Um, the lady told me that Anna was in the accident and um, it was, it was not good.
0: At seven that morning, fewer than 12 hours after the accident, clear and exact details about what occurred were still scarce. Anna, Delondra was told, lost control of her motorcycle during a skid and while attempting to lay the bike down, impacted a parked car becoming wedged underneath that vehicle. By the time EMTs arrived on scene, Anna was unconscious, unresponsive, and wasn't breathing. She'd been seriously injured in the crash.
2: My, um... Oldest sister, one of my older sisters from New York called me, and she, said, she asked me, she said, Cookie, She said, I heard on the news that somebody was, a woman was on a motorcycle and they had an accident, and is that Anna? And I said, unfortunately, yes, that's Anna. I said, we are heading out. We're going to Fort Drum now.
0: This is the first time in the day where we address the accident head on with any kind of specificity. And it's clear that it affects both Delondra and Anna. Anna, who's sitting just a few inches away from me, becomes agitated, rocking back and forth some. I don't know if she was responding to Delondra's emotion or if she was having a memory of the moment herself. I think Delondra worries that we might find it unsettling or inappropriate. We don't. But it's clear she's experienced this before. She's had to explain it before. And that, in its own way, it takes a little bit of a toll.
2: And it's okay. Her her motion is um, off. So... If you're sad, Anna's emotion is different. Um, So we learned to adjust to that. Um.
0: There's always something strange and a little uncomfortable about that time period between when you first find out that a loved one has taken ill or has been injured and when you can get to them and be with them and see for yourself how they're doing. And that was suddenly where Delandra found herself, having to process the news while coordinating with family how she'd get from where she was in Georgia to wherever Anna was in New York, mired in the business of plane tickets, housing arrangements, and transportation, all while worried, sick, scared to death for the child she loved so much. Delandra rushed to the hospital when she landed in New York.
2: How is my daughter? What's going on? Where is she?
0: Unfortunately, Delandra's initial encounters with the doctor who treated Anna proved frustrating because Delandra felt that she was getting more judgment of Anna than she was getting details about her case.
2: All I wanted to know was if Anna was okay. And he said, well, you don't want me to know what I did for Anna? I was like, no. How is my daughter? All I want to know is, was she okay? That's all I want to know. Well, did you know she was riding a bike And she got in a motorcycle accident, yes, okay, but how is my daughter? What's going on?
0: Eventually, she was taken to Anna, and as she entered that hospital room, she realized something that I think we all can understand, how unprepared a mother is, any mother, to see her child
2: in that situation. She was in the, um, she was in, they put in a medical-induced coma, um... She was, she was more head wrapped than anything else. Um, she had a brace on her hand that they wrapped in and then put a cast on it.
0: Anna was fighting for her life. She had been unconscious since the accident and her extrication from the crash, medevac to nearby Syracuse, and ultimately kept in a medically induced coma for weeks as a team worked to stabilize her. Along with several broken bones and impact injuries, Anna had sustained traumatic brain injury with traumatic intracerebral hemorrhage subdural hematoma, and subarachnoid bleeding with cerebral edema, as well as an acute right orbital floor fracture that extended to the anterior maxillary wall. In the aftermath of her accident, she'd remained on a ventilator and required tracheostomy and an intracranial pressure monitoring device, as MRIs continued to show the extensive damage to her brain. Throughout this time, Delandre continued to try to understand the circumstances of her daughter's accident. To piece together what happened that night. What seemed to be a wild mix of conflicting stories and accounts confused her and other family members. Later news reports had appeared to imply that Anna had struck the vehicle following a dangerous high-speed police chase after first refusing to pull over for a minor speeding violation. But Delandra had also been personally told that her daughter had committed misdemeanor traffic violations at most. And while one doctor in Syracuse repeatedly referred to Anna's traveling at 100 miles an hour or more, another assured her that the level and type of Anna's bodily injuries, and the fact that she'd even survived the impact at all, made that a physical impossibility. While Anna's health remained her priority and focus, aspects of the story continued to bother Delandre, not the least of which was how wholly inconsistent. The idea of Anna leading police on a high speed, near fatal, reckless chase, all to avoid a speeding ticket for going 40 something in a 35 mile per hour zone, would have been for the type of conscientious, high performing person, driver, and decorated soldier that Anna had been her entire life. This was the sergeant that soldiers were telling Delandre could always be counted on to assure they did the right thing in the right way. It didn't make sense, but there wasn't time to make in-depth inquiries. And those she did were mostly met with a reassurance that all she needed to worry about was her daughter's health. As curious as the matter was, as inconsistent as it seemed, nothing seemed to be coming of it. So Delandre returned her focus firmly to her daughter and honest prospects for recovery.
2: One of the main neurosurgeons was very confident and ended Anna's recovery.
0: But while there had been those hints of optimism, things ultimately appeared to take a turn in the worst possible way.
2: One of the doctors kept on and said she's not going to make it, and um, asked me if I wanted to make the decision to pull the plug on Anna, and I told him no.
0: Delandra, remembering that early optimism and wanting to give her daughter the best chance possible, had no intention to pull the plug. And so she said no. And together with the doctors, they settled on a treatment plan for Anna. But her serious challenges continued.
2: One night when I finally went to bed to um, try to get some sleep, they called me back and told me Anna wasn't gonna make it. And that, um, We were losing her. Her numbers was going down. Her heart rate, her lungs was failing her. And they asked me if I wanted to pull the plug again. And I said, no. I said, if you're asking me to do that, I'm not. And they said, well, we maxed out. We can't do anything else for Anna. And I said, well, I don't understand maxed out. I said, I don't understand what that is. So they said, um... She said, Well, there's nothing else we could do for her. I was sitting on the side with Anna, praying with her. One of the um, residents came. He was from respiratory. And he had another young man with him. They said, "Um, You're not going to pull a plug? I said, No. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Okay. And um, he started Messing with her numbers. He's to her. Her um. She had the ventilator tube in her. He started pumping and messing with the tubes and cleaning, and changing, and doing things. And I noticed he was looking at her numbers. And then he, when he finished changing everything and moving everything, he looked at me. He says, "Anna will be fine." Her numbers went down to, to from 20-something back to 100, her auctioned the numbers. And he said she had well, fluid on the lungs and that she would be okay. And I still called this, this doctor, I don't know what he was, I called my guardian angel, and Anna's angel. They never gave me, I didn't even know his name. It happened that Saturday and that, that, that Monday and I was
0: fine. Sitting with Delondra, more than a year later, you can see she's still shaken by how close she came to losing her daughter. First to the accident, but then to the repeated, if sincere, insistence by someone on his care team, seemingly informed by this dizzying array of numbers, poor test results, falling levels, daunting vital stats, that Anna's options had been maxed out, and the decision to pull the plug had become a question of when, not if. And she wonders... What would have happened had she not insisted on giving Anna more time or if Anna's guardian angel had not appeared seemingly out of nowhere in answer to her prayers? What if she, too, had relied on the numbers?
2: Unfortunately, their numbers failed us, and those numbers failed me, and I would have made a decision on those numbers, and they were right. I thank God that... I didn't let her go.
0: While Anna's progress was slow at first, it grew steady over time, and her family found their prayers answered when doctors informed them that Anna was now stable enough to move to another facility for additional evaluation and to begin an albeit uncertain rehabilitation process. Delandre was ready, ready to put the roller coaster ride of the previous two months behind her and start a new forward looking journey for Anna. It still bothered her a little bit that she'd never been able to fully put together the specifics of the accident itself, but the matter, once the source of sensational news reports and inconsistent hospital chatter had largely faded away. Upon review, the police had declined to look into the matter further, meaning there were no additional investigations and no charges were ever filed. Anna, it appeared, hadn't even received a traffic ticket. As a result, the few records that did exist from the night of the accident were shielded by a New York law designed to protect citizens who were never charged or convicted of a crime, from the sharing of records that could otherwise be prejudicial to them. Though she would have liked to have known the real story behind that handful of sensational news accounts and that early hospital scuttlebutt, Delandre, who'd also never been contacted by anyone from the Army over the accident, resolved to put the past behind her and move confidently toward Anna's next phase of care and a better future. She was pleased to learn the Army would work with her to facilitate Anna's transfer to a state of the art research, rehabilitation, and treatment center close to her home with a dedicated focus on the types of issues Anna was dealing with. There, Anna would receive the latest in evaluation and rehabilitation while the Army would continue to monitor and assess her prospects, her viability as a soldier, and ultimately facilitate her medical separation from the Army. Anna's military service was turning out to be one of those small hidden blessings. While Anna had long extolled the virtues of the army she loved, how the army was more than a job, it was a family, how it was literally woven into the soldier's creed that none are left behind, now Delandra and the rest of Anna's family were seeing it for themselves. It turns out, though no parent would ever want traumatic brain injury to befall their child, the United States military is about as ideal an environment to sustain one in terms of both an understanding of the challenges it presents and an unwavering, holistic commitment to treatment and rehabilitation.
1: March is National Brain Injury Awareness Month. These injuries occur on the battlefield, the athletic field, during training, or due to mishaps or accidents that occur with everyday life.
0: That's the Army Surgeon General in 2014. In a clip from one of the hundreds of military PSAs, news stories, training, and education pieces put out every year to educate the larger military family about the many facets of TBI. The nature of military service, and combat in particular, has given the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration significant experience with the diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation of TBI. And that's led to the development of a DOD Brain Injury Center of Excellence, specialized research, treatment, and rehabilitation centers throughout the United States, and partnerships with partners both unconventional and unexpected like the National Football League and state-of-the-art medical facilities specializing in TBI all over the country. Tonight we look at the signature injury from this war, traumatic brain injury.
1: Mayberry and a small group of other wounded warriors are part of an innovative treatment program at the Shepherd Center, a private rehabilitation hospital in Atlanta.
0: The Shepherd Center in Atlanta? That's precisely where the Army was transferring Anna to continue her care. Anna, Delandra learned, would be eligible for many of these programs. As a veteran, she'd have access to search and treatment options others in her situation might not. In fact, the number of benefits available, including to soldiers and veterans who, like Anna, sustain their TBIs while serving but outside of combat, were overwhelming in their quantity and their comprehensiveness. Delandra also learned that the VA even had programs in place to help families of disabled veterans install ramps and other accessibility features. Programs that help maintain and improve the quality of life across the board for permanently disabled veterans, and they could even provide respite care for Delandra and her family, so that they could refresh and recharge as they adjusted to their new roles as permanent caregivers. The Army really meant it when they said they leave no soldier behind, and as it was explained, Anna's 10 years of meritorious service would now be recognized in a different way, through the provision of the benefits she'd already earned by a nation and a military grateful. Anna’s long history of voluntary service. As Delandra prepared to assume the formal legal guardianship of her daughter and transition her into post-military life, she was comforted by the knowledge and security of knowing Anna and she were not alone. Whatever they faced on Anna’s road through rehabilitation and care, the nation and the army Anna loved so much would be with them at every step. Until the day, the army told Delandra that none of that was actually going to happen. So this is where things start to get weird. It turns out that while the Watertown police had declined to investigate Anna's accident further, effectively closing the case, the army was a different matter entirely. That pro forma investigation, the one mentioned in passing to Delandra while Anna was in a coma? Its results had apparently changed everything as far as the Army was concerned. A young officer, a captain from Anna's unit, had been assigned to look into the matter. And he'd reported to his superiors that Anna's accident hadn't been caused by mere speed or even reckless driving. Anna, he'd concluded, had willfully and with complete intention led police on a wild chase to the outskirts of town at triple-digit speeds, forcing other cars onto shoulders and into oncoming traffic before losing control of her bike and slamming into a parked vehicle at 70 miles per hour. Presumably, he claimed, because she was too busy looking back to see if the cops are still on her tail she neglected to see the car stopped in front of her. Anna, the young man determined, was effectively resisting arrest or escaping from legal custody and thus had sealed her own fate, caused her own injuries, and forfeited all related DOD and VA benefits as a result. Delandre was stunned. Stunned that the first she'd heard of the investigation was a letter announcing the results? Stunned that despite her inquiries as Anna's representative, she'd been given no heads up, no chance to respond on Anna's behalf, and no chance to secure the legal assistance and representation Anna was entitled to under Army regulations. But she was stunned most of all when, after requesting a copy of the investigator's report, she opened it up and began to read. See, Delandre thought she was prepared for anything by that point. She'd wanted to know the details of the accident for some time, and had long said if they proved unfavorable to her daughter, so be it. She'd taught her daughter's personal responsibility, and Anna herself was known to insist the soldiers in her care take exactly that. But nothing prepared Delandre for that captain's report. One thing she knew by the time she'd finished reading, the woman described in that report was not her daughter. And that's where we come in. On the next episode, Tommy and I will take you right into the investigation and the unnerving things we found once we started digging around. We'll take you through a report that describes an Anna Clark who would be completely unrecognizable to anyone who'd ever met or served with her. And that's before we get to the random mentions of a biker bar nightclub, notorious motorcycle gangs, and learn of this Anna's ability to defy both the laws of physics and common sense. Yeah, on the next episode, this ish gets crazy, and we're bringing you right along with us as we start a hunt for the truth and nothing but... Join us next time on Intersections from The Brink with Benjamin Bryant. The Brink with Benjamin Bryant is produced by Tommy Zemberlin and me, but not without the help and support of our amazing team, Rebecca Vega-Contreras... Irene Cisneros, and Christian Little. Our consulting producer and overall sounding board is Laura Tamayo, and we wouldn't be here without the original BZCast team, including Daniel Bachman, Beverly George, and Andrea Buckley. A very special thanks to the untold numbers of current and retired military and civilian subject matter experts who provided much-needed background and clarification, including a number of my former colleagues and several members of my own family. Of course, there would be no intersections without the cooperation and contribution of Christopher Nadevella, Adriana George, Delandra Belcher, and Anna Clark. The Brink with Benjamin Bryant is a production of BZMP.